Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. I'm Jake. Uh, we got Eric and Cameron on. Apparently, I'm also the only person who's not wearing his Dad Bod shirt tonight. So, well, take your shirt off and that. put that one on. Not too late. Yeah, be great for me. views. So, how you guys doing? <laughs> Guess not. Good. Doing well. Awesome. awesome. Okay. So, what uh, what'd you guys do this week weekend? today so um my daughter's birthday my my youngest turned four today and it's it's kind of been a weekend long extravaganza of fun for her and it's the cutest thing man because when she woke up this morning everybody said oh happy birthday and and everybody was all excited for her but Mm -hmm. she was very clear in correcting us that she didn't turn four until she blew out the candles. It was it was very important to her that no nope, that is birthday doesn't happen law. until the the ceremonial uh blowing out of the candles. Mm-hmm. So she told people at the grocery store, she told people we went on a hike yesterday, like everybody that we saw, um she was wearing them out about that. So it was it was pretty cute and we had a good time. We put um a movie out in the backyard and sat on the trampoline and watched it. So it was a good time. Very memorable four-year-old birthday for her. I like it. That's good. I, I like that rule too. I think that should be something we should maybe adopt as a people, as a nation. I like that, that it's not, I, I haven't turned my wife until I blow out the candle. I'm not a fan of extra legislation. That seems kind of wasteful. We're going to enforce that kick down doors. If you uh, say happy birthday too early. <laughs> well, for the record, my wife is is a big fan of that because she she figures she can stave off birthdays if you know if she doesn't blow out candles. Yeah. So I, I think all the women of the country would beg to differ, Eric. Yeah. I I think that could be. I just think that's kind of a cool tradition. Like, ah, uh, it's ah, uh, I haven't turned a year old. Until I blow out the candle. Like, and like, what I'm if it's a trick? Wait, still 39. Tri- I'm still 39. And it's one of those trick candles that keeps lighting back up. I'm 40. Oh, 39, 40, 39. Oh, like it just won't. Yeah. I think that could be kind of fun. It could work. It could work. I'm not saying we have to pass draconian laws. I'm just saying it'd be fun to celebrate that way. Or not. Or whatever. So. Out of the mouth of a four-year-old. That's that's the yeah. best way to do it. I um, like but that. yeah, it was a great weekend for for us at the Layman House. Um, we also, I don't know if you guys, as, as former Arizona residents, I don't know if you've ever been to um, Tonto Bridge up near Pine, Arizona. I have not. Um, awesome place. Um, it was really, really cool. My first time having been there. The kids loved it. Um, but I hear it's super crowded. So it if you're from Arizona, it's terrible. Don't go there, um, especially in the summertime when it's hot. But uh, yeah, I, I I loved it. Highly recommended it. And um, the, the kids said, "Oh, this is the best hike ever." I mean, that's a, that's an important thing to us. We go hiking all the 
time. And uh, they all said, oh, this is our best hike yet. So it was, it was really cool. My daughter had a very uh, memorable birthday. That's awesome, man. That, that kind of reminds me. Um, so since we've moved to, to Utah, um, we've been trying to get the kids outside more and just enjoy the nature that's around us. And there's a really nice park, not two minutes from our house. And then there's another really good park about 15, 20 minutes away. And, and so we've been going to these parks the past few weeks and my kids are not good at hiking because after about 15 minutes or so, or now more than that, but right as we get to about as far as we're going to go. And maybe this is why our kids just stop walking and they just start like dragging their feet and they lay down like a dog, to sit down. Yeah. My son will, he'll run up in front of me to stop me from moving forward. And he'll ask me to pick him up. And I'm like, nobody, I'm not picking you up. And like, I feel like I'm, I'm putting them on like a, a death march here. Cause they're just like, they're just so tired, but then they see a playground and all of a sudden all their energy is back and they're fine. They just didn't want to walk to get there or, or whatever it is. So um, yesterday we went to this other park. It was really nice. It had a stream going through it and we let the kids play in that for a while too. And um, it's been really nice. The weather's been been really gorgeous the past couple of weekends. So it just, when you said that. Yeah. Something about Cameron, being around water. I don't know. It's just cause I've been in Phoenix for long enough, but um Tonto Bridge has a creek flowing through it as well. And it just mm -hmm. makes everything better. Um, and, and maybe that's the desert person in me saying that, but it just makes a hike better when you're aiming for something, you know, be it a lake or a yeah. creek or whatever. It gives, you know, so the kids are not laying down because most of the time that's just boredom talking as opposed yeah. to, oh, I'm tired. Kids I know can, they're not tired. Run forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. I've seen my son run non-stop for hours i know he can do it he just doesn't want to to get to you know like so but it's been really nice getting outside so it's just you reminded me of that when you when you said that because you do take your kids hiking a lot so it's been nice that we've been getting our kids into that um and they've really liked it how about you eric uh we didn't do much i mean it was our first week back after spring break so it was a short week for us. Uh, but yesterday, my daughter went um, to a birthday party where they hiked. And uh, <clears throat> she got invited by a friend of hers. And they went out to a, a place called uh, Wind, Wind Wolves Preserve uh, in the Tahone Mountains. And uh, we've been out there before. We should go out there more often. Um, but she Fort went out Tahone. there. Uh, yeah, so right? it's... Fort Tejon, which um, it's been on the show, yeah. it's been on it the show. The Dad bod road trip, uh, Dad bod history road trip. If you check that out, Jake and I uh, walked around Fort Tejon and talked about that. <laughs> we also found out while we were there that Joe Biden had been elected, duly elected. All conspiracies aside, um, but in that same mountain range, further west is Windwolf Preserve and. Um, they have a trail that goes up the mountain. They have some water there, but she went with some, some of her other friends from fourth grade and, and uh, got a bunch of pictures back from the mom that took them and it was great. So I went to go pick her up and they're in the pool 
and I walked in with another dad and I'm there and I know I've got dinner plans coming up. So I tell my daughter, Hey, we're going to get going soon. She looks at me and says, Oh, daddy, it's a few more minutes. Said, All right. You know, I'm not gonna, I don't have the will to fight. It wasn't one of those moments like Cameron had last week where he was willing to just go to the wall <laughs> over a cup of water. But then one of the dads like, here, have a beer, have a seat. I said, you know, no beer, but I'll have a seat. And I sat there, sat there for like 45 minutes chatting with these parents. So it was kind of nice uh, just to have that time chatting with some other adults. Uh, so a, a couple bit. minutes became 45? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then I finally am looking at my watch. I'm like, I got to be back at 530. It's 5.05. I still got to stop for ice. We got people coming over. And so thankfully, one of the other dads is like, well, I have to go. I'm like, well, then we are definitely going. I get up, say, hey, we're going to go. She says, two more minutes. I said, fine. <laughs> and then two minutes hit. I said, hey, that's two minutes. She's like, oh. And then one of the parents is like, what, five more minutes. And I said, nope, nope. She could have made that deal earlier. Two minutes, we're out. Uh, so, okay. She had a lot Fred, of fun. Fred Jones would be very disappointed in you. No, I don't care. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's Saturday afternoon. I'm not, awesome. not going to the wall over that. So we, uh, I didn't do a countdown. Yeah. Pick your battles. One, you two. Go to the wall. You didn't even get off the couch. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went to pick her up. Otherwise, she would have had to walk home. Oh, okay. But... <laughs> It was fun. She had a good time. Good. And obviously when we got home, she was really tuckered out. We had people over. She was kind of excited for that, but she just was a bum after that, which is good, right? You want them to be tired and worn out. So. Well behaved that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I've got another story you before, we, before we get into the teeth of tonight. I got to, I got to share something that um, I, I feel like I'm, talking about the weather a lot and I don't mean to come as an come off as an old man dad as I right. do that but but here goes um as you know I live in Phoenix we're trying to just wring all of the great weather out that we possibly can this spring it's been in the 80s and 90s it's absolutely beautiful but you know now that I've become a dad and I've been a dad for a while you know you really know that you reach black belt dad status when you start yelling at the kids for leaving the door open because flies come in. Yes. And I, I literally said that. Yeah, no, five not, times not today. for the heat. At this point, it's the flies. Exactly. And, and exactly. I, I don't and know if I, you know this, where I live, Bakersfield, it's like famous for twice a year. There's just like two times a year, there's just massive amount of flies. It's absolutely uh, insane. Where I'm like, I'm killing like. And you get one fly in the house, then there's 15 all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So I, it got to the point today, literally. So there's my three kids and neighborhood kids and just everybody filtering in and out all, all day and all weekend. And I, it got to the point where I thought they were messing with me on purpose. Hey, let's leave the door open and make sure that we can make dad as angry as possible. So here I am just getting super, super ticked. And then I caught myself on doing something else that was like extra black belt dad status. Um, everybody likes to leave the lights on in their bedroom, in the bathroom, all that. And I will go throughout the house, turning off lights, counting them 
One oh, click, okay. two <laughs> click, three click. And you know, it's not, it's, it's not uncommon for me to get to like five or six lights turned off. And I swear, I tell my wife all this time. I mean, we would have a $400 uh, electric bill if it weren't for me every month. But anyway, right. that, that's my rant. I just had to get off no. that off my chest. That's okay. This, this isn't just a history podcast. This is a self-help group and we're here to help each other out. Cause yeah. my thing is the thermostat and I swear <laughs> not my kids. My wife changes it just to mess with me sometimes just to keep me on my toes. Um, no. But I'm always adjusting the thermostat. Like it's just infuriating. It, when I lived, when I lived in Arizona, it was always during the summer I'd be like, I feel like 78's a bit too cold to have this set. Let's crank it up to 82 and see if we can make that work. And we never could. <laughs> Admittedly, we never could. It was way too hot. But I was doing anything I could to save money on that that cooling bill. I was, I'd always be like, just turn up just a little bit. Just, we don't like, but my wife would always turn it down to like 74 at night. And I'm like, why? Why is it so cold? And, 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 and now it's the opposite kids, here. Now it's the heat. Well, not so much right now, but during the winter, it was the heat. And yeah. and it was like... And it 60 just, is fine. Like, I hear him at... Yeah, seriously, I'm like, we don't need to turn the heat on yet. We're fine. Just get more blankets. And I get realized I've become my father. And I'm yeah. going to start saying things like, did you grow up in a barn? And like stuff like, are we trying to heat the outside? And all yeah. those things just keep coming back to me and... I re and it, it, it just happened. It was so natural. I don't know when it happened. I don't know at what point after my daughter was born, did that like immediately the genetics in me switch and automatically I'm like, well, I got to see what things cost now. And I can't be affording all these lights. What's up with all these? Lights? You know, a couple times the my... thing. I, when does that happen? Is, is it yeah. the day after your first child is born or is it a slow drip? It's a slow yeah. drift, I think. You know, the couple yeah. times my AC has gone out, one of the first things my brain goes to is, well, I'm going to save my electric bill this month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't connect to the fact that I also have an AC that needs to be fixed, but <laughs> save money on that electric bill. Well, and that was always a game that we've, and I'm sure you guys did, we would play in Arizona as me and my wife would be like, all right, how long can we make it before we have to turn that AC on? Because yep. once it gets cold, cool enough, we don't turn the heat on hardly down in Arizona. We we would go entire winters without using the heat. Um, right. Just bake but, some cookies. We, That'll do it. We play that game and yeah, we just did a lot of baking. Uh, we play that when, how long can we go? Can we make it? Can we make it through April sort of thing? Can we, how long can we make it into May? And, you know, and just because once it comes in, it just, it gets so expensive so fast there. With that we we live in a in a two story here in Bakersfield, and one of the things that I'm able to do is maybe it'll happen this month where it'll get warm enough where we got to turn the AC on at night, but where around two a.m. I can wake up, turn it off, open all the windows upstairs, and it'll get it. You know, it's like we cooled it down enough, but then it stops running because it's not getting warmer so I can open all the windows up. I will, that's wake up early and just think of all that money you're saving. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just by waking up at two, opening it. Wow. Yeah. Well done, yeah. Eric. 
Thank you, well Jocko. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, oh, yeah, you you come here for the history, but you know you, you never know, you know what you're going to learn as a as a dad. Um, one last thing that I wanted, I got two. One, uh, Marcus, the other night I was laying with him in bed trying to get him to sleep, and uh, he was listing off people that saved the world. And he's like, Iron Man saves the world, S- Superman saves the world, Batman saves the world, Hulk Smash saves the world, Mommy saves the world. Spider-Man saves the world. Uh, Daddy was not on that list. So <laughs> just thanks. So. Um, I don't know. Mommy is, which I totally understand. I respect that. I appreciate it. I would have liked to have gotten an honorable mention. Um, but no. Yeah, that's a that's a knife in the back right there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then one last thing. Uh, my wife's mom, uh, we were talking to her this week. And uh, she <laughs> noticed <laughs> she had uh, our dad bod merch our magnets and um stickers and she has several magnets and several stickers and she put two of them on her car one on each side of the trunk i think right above the taillight and uh, she went out to the car a couple weeks ago and she noticed that one of them was missing and she goes well that's odd i wonder what happened if somebody stole it if it fell off and and uh or if it like got knocked off in the car wash or something like that and a week later, come to find, she notices it on another car, a car that she's never seen before, and she does not know the occupants of or owners of. <laughs> and it was a giant, like think like a, like an old Cutlass Supreme or something like that, like one of those big giant seventies. Um, what were they? I don't know. Muscle. I don't know if they were muscle car or just boats probably that's what we call them boats but it was tricked out like it had all these decal like all this a really nice paint job and and um tinted windows and like nice rims and like and then right in the middle on the back where normally you'd have like the ford or chevy logo was a giant dad bod history magnet so uh, well we got good placement then we got great placement prime spot on a hey, really if nice that's car. your car reach out to us we want to hear from yeah. you yeah uh, yeah, we're not met. You didn't. <laughs> she didn't pay for those magnets. No. So, but, you know, if you want if you more want merch, more, let we'll us know. More, yeah, yeah. But if you don't reach out to us, my mother-in-law will find you. She is now on a mission <laughs> to find that car again. She wants to find the people and like talk to them and take a photo and be like, "My son-in-law" and all that stuff. So, either you reach out to us, or there's, or she's coming for you. There's gonna be a. She's uh, going to Liam Neeson uh, you. Yeah, there's going to be a, a a wonderful, sweet lady chasing you down in uh, in her Ford Taurus. So that's your choice. Your decision's up to you, sir. Um, so that's all I got. Uh, so let's get started. Episode yeah. two of Russo-Japanese War. Um, so last week we talked about kind of the the lead up to the war we went back and explained you know what the history of russia was prior to this war what the history of japan was prior to this war specifically the last 50 years um from the end of the tokugawa shogunate in japan to the meiji restoration and then eventually into their expansionist policies in the late 1800s up to the beginning of the war in 1904 similarly with russia we talked about under Peter the Great in the 1600s, how he was the one, the first that tried to modernize Russia and westernize it, so to speak, 
Uh, he was the first to encourage Russia to have a, a true Navy, an Imperial Navy under Catherine the Great that expanded and Russia territory spread from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific and for a while even into what we know as Alaska. And now they were trying to establish themselves further south and, and their motivations all centered around, in Japan, centered around this, this um, peninsula called the uh, Leodong Peninsula. And within that peninsula, a harbor called Port Arthur. And both Japan and Russia had interests in it. Japan actually had conquered it um, from the Chinese 10 years prior in 1894, um, but were forced to divest that um, because France, Germany, and Russia made a treaty that said, if you do it, you'll have to go to war with all three of us. So Japan gave it up, Russia moved in, and then these tensions between Manchuria and Korea and, and whether Japan and Russia would have influence over certain areas um, kind of led to this breakdown in communication to where on February 8th, 1904, Russia launches a surprise attack on or I'm sorry, Japan launches a surprise attack on the Russian Navy harbored in Port Arthur. And that kind of leads us up to tonight. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to add in that really quick recap, but. I think the only thing I, Cameron asked a question last time about where Russia was. And I think I kind of made a mistake. I kind of, I think I made a, it sound as if Russia was just now trying to make an empire. In thinking about that, Russia had had this empire since the 1600s. What they're doing at this point is trying to expand as much as everyone else had. I mean, at this point, Russia has the largest empire um, in the world currently just because of everything they own in Siberia. But like Jake said, they, they've gone as far east as Alaska. Uh, now they're venturing to go south because they want warm water ports that are not uh, kept out of major sea lanes Ocean by like Party. the Turks. What's that? Hmm. Oh, I would, go ahead. Sorry. Right. So they're like their fleet that's in the Black Sea. I was can't just going to make leave. a point that it was a it was a warm water point port. Yeah. So Vladivostok is frozen over part of the year. Uh, in Sevastopol, which is in the Crimea and on the Black Sea, that's a warm water port, but they need permission from the Turks to go through the Bosporus. So the Russians don't have a warm water port that is open to the sea. And that is the next step for their empire in their mind. And that yeah. would be Port Arthur. Yeah. And, and I mean, we can get into the motivations. I mean, it wasn't necessarily just about land, but it was about resources. And I think that was a big part of it. They wanted the resources that Southeast Asia offered as well. But so we, we get to this point where Japan realizes Russia is not going to negotiate with them anymore. So they have to go to war and they preemptively do so, which technically was against the rules of war. But um, it wasn't like such a big deal that it upset any of the other European powers or America at this time. So Japan launches a surprise attack on the Russian fleet that's that's uh, anchored in Port Arthur right now. And that fleet, the Japanese fleet, consisted of six battleships, including the Mikasa, 10 cruisers, 
30 destroyers and 40 torpedo boats. And Eric, I don't know if you guys did, did if you did any research on the types of ships, um, but the battleships that Japan had, Japan couldn't build their own battleships. Right. Uh, they didn't have the, the, their harbors or their ports weren't big enough to build battleships. So all their battleships, I think, except for like one, were Russia or were British built ships. And I think one was either French or may have been American. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're these kind of uh, pre-dreadnought, right? So mm-hmm. if we think about um, the USS Missouri, the USS Arizona, those are battleships. Um, I think the USS Arizona was laid down uh, during World War One around that time. So during World War One and right before World War One, we have these dreadnought class battleships. And these are pre-dreadnought. These are the first <clears throat> kind of uh, steel hold ships um, with the kind of guns that they have with the, the rotating turrets. Um, and so these are the kind of ships they're going to be taking into battle. What's interesting is because we're going into this battle of Port Arthur. So they, right beforehand, they had cut off diplomatic ties, which is always a good sign. And then <laughs> they had prepared a declaration of war and then they struck on the 8th of February. On the very next day, they also struck at Chimalpo, which is a harbor that is now Incheon, South Korea, um, on the west coast of the Korean Peninsula. So they strike there. They're striking at Port Arthur. This is very similar to and the, the best kind of analogy we can make, comparison we can make is the attack on Pearl Harbor of 7th December, mm-hmm. 1941, because it wasn't just Pearl Harbor. They struck at Pearl Harbor. They struck at, uh, I think like Hong Kong. There's like several different sites all over the Pacific that the Japanese attacked on that day on, on 7th December for Hawaii, but the other, the rest of the, the Pacific was already in the 8th of December. So, mm-hmm. It's a similar thing, cut off the diplomatic ties, make your strike, which had been planned for weeks ahead of time. And then, you know, give your declaration of war and say, just if you didn't notice, it's on. So, yeah. uh, and they struck so, at Chimalpo. And I think basically Chimalpo was, uh, there wasn't much damage done there, just for a few casualties, ships, uh, basically uh, the Japanese lost a ship. Ships. At uh, Chimalpo, uh, the Russians had to scuttle their ships afterwards. Yeah. So they weren't act, they were damaged enough, but the Russians were able to handle it and take them down. But Port Arthur is really where the Japanese mm-hmm. needed to strike because that's where the the bulk of the Russian fleet was at. So and getting back to that, the Japanese yeah. fleet. Oh, go ahead, Cameron. As I was, and, and sorry to, to cut you guys off, but just to kind of set the scene, as I was reading this, you know, I, I put all this stuff in context of what I know and, and what do I know pretty well as basketball. And, you know, as a, as a coach or as a player, you always try to get your guys to dictate the tempo of what's, what you're trying to do, right? It's, it's very easy mm-hmm. to react to what the opponents are doing. It's very easy to get in that mindset of, oh, let's see what they're going to do first and then uh, block that or, or stop that or, or try to you know prevent them from doing what they want to do. Um, Japan, especially in the beginning, obviously it was a sneak attack, but very much in the front half of the war, it was 
a tendency by Japan to dictate the tempo and be the aggressor and to say, this is, is what's happening here. And I think it immediately got Russia on its heels um, because of that just aggression. They, they Not only did they um, underestimate Japan, but they were on their heels because of that initial dictating the tempo. Before we yeah. finish the Battle of Port Arthur, I have another basketball analogy that I thought of earlier. So... Do you want to hold out? You got, or you got it now, or do you? It's want to? for the end of Port Arthur. Okay, when we finish Port right. Arthur. Just come back to me. So get back, back, getting back to the ships. Um, so the battleships, and these were the pre pre dreadnoughts, as you mentioned, Eric. Um, so the battleships were they had the big guns and they had the big guns and turrets, but then they also had a bunch of smaller guns, and so they're kind of this hybrid. So if the Missouri is our ideal of like the the typical or prototypical battleship with the big guns that can rotate but no other really little guns um and the old ships of the line the old wooden ships you know where they just had rows and rows and rows of cannons sticking out portholes that they would fire these battleships are kind of a hybrid of both um so they still had a bunch of old guns that were mounted to the sides of the ships and then they had the big guns that could rotate and Anyway, so it just to give you that that kind of concept of, of what they looked like, they're kind of this weird mid mishmash, mid-step between the old and the new, but they were definitely battleships. Um, they were fully steam, no power by sail. Uh, they had a radio, um, and then they had the massive like 10 or 12-inch guns. Um, so the Japanese had six battleships, 10 cruisers and cruisers, um, were like armored cruisers or protected. Uh, they weren't as powerful as the battleships, but they were still very big, powerful ships, uh, destroyers and then torpedo boats. And I believe destroyers, correct me if I'm wrong, were, were specifically there to sink torpedo boats. Because torpedo boats could sink the battleships and the cruisers. I think destroyers were there to sink the torpedo boats. Yeah, destroyers um, are a, a smaller class of ship that protect the larger ones. I think that's kind of how that yeah. goes. They're quicker, more maneuverable, yeah. but... But less armed and right. less armored. Um, and then, and so they had six <laughs> battleships, 10 cruisers, 30 destroyers, 40 torpedo boats. The Russians in Port Arthur had seven battleships, six cruisers, one merchant ship, and then two destroyers. Um, and that's it. The, the Japanese Navy, that's their whole Navy. They don't have another fleet. That is their fleet. And the Russians have one pretty large fleet in Port Arthur alone. And then they have a cruiser squadron up in Vladivostok as well, four cruisers, um, that are in Vladivostok. So Japan seizes that initiative. Um, they launched some torpedoes and, I got a quote for you. I want to just go over on this initial strike. Uh, Admiral Stark, who's the Admiral, not Tony Stark, as we mentioned last week, but Admiral Stark, who is the Admiral in Port Arthur at the time, ordered two destroyers to patrol outside the harbor to provide early warning because the Russians couldn't attack the Japanese first or they would also be at war with Britain. So they just had to be looking out for that attack. Uh, so two cruisers to sweep the entrance with their searchlights and all ships to put anti-torpedo nets and prepare for action. However, several ships had not yet carried out his orders and many of their officers were partying on shore. 
The two destroyers returning from patrol found themselves in the midst of 10 Japanese destroyers and hastened in to report to the enemy presence. They were still reporting when the strike came. Just before midnight on 8th of February, the first Japanese torpedoes were fired. In an attack lasting only a few minutes, the Retstevan and Sayarovich and the cruiser Palata were holed and sank to the mud of the relatively shallow harbor. The Russians were too unprepared to even return fire. Only the Novik gave chase, but the Japanese destroyers were simply too fast. So that's the attack that happens that starts this war. Um, most of the officers were partying, I believe, on the Retstevan, um, celebrating Admiral Stark's wife's birthday, by the way. So that's why most, most of the officers weren't following the orders because they were celebrating the wife's birthday of the admiral so that opens our hostilities and i don't know about you guys i want to get your thoughts but what i see here and cameron i think you said it really well is japan sees the initiative i mean as you know russ it probably should have been a little more aware and they were aware they're like well we're probably going to get attacked but they didn't plan to get attacked i mean the admiral gave orders and Nobody really followed the orders. And even if they did, they didn't do a very good job of it. Whereas Japan had this well-coordinated, perfectly timed strike when they knew that the officers were going to be distracted because of this party. Oh, that's another thing. Japan had this incredible spy network. Right, um, their intelligence. Get yeah. <clears throat> we're gonna see that in other battles as well. Um, so that's what I noticed and uh, it just kind of sets this tone that we're going to see kind of carry out throughout the war. And Japan seizes the initiative and like in sports, it's hard to take the momentum back um, once you've given it up so early in a contest. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I noticed the Japanese attack was not what we would call massively successful that most of the torpedoes, the majority of the torpedoes were not successful hits. But when you have seven ships damaged, it leaves you in a position of having to repair those ships before you can make your move, right? So you lose the initiative. The thought that came to mind, again, I said, well, I was thinking basketball. You know, it's like when you go out there, you warm up, you know you're going to be playing basketball. You're the better team. You look at the other team. You realize they can't do much. You're going to be dominant. You're expected to be dominant. And then 45 seconds into the game, you know, they got a steal right off the bat, got a layup, came back down, hit a three, got another layup. You're down seven to zero. And it you still got the whole game ahead of you. You know, you can dominate this team. But they came out right away and you're down seven zero. You got to take a timeout. It puts you in a position of, of just being unsure of what's going to happen. If you have to spend five weeks repairing ships that's a problem. It means you can't go out there and take the fight back to them. You are on your heels. You are waiting for them. And as we're going to see going forward, uh, as it turns out, the Russians are going to be playing the defender in this war because they're the ones who have the territory to defend. Um, so, you know, when we talk about Pearl Harbor, as kind of that that thing that we can compare this to, uh, Pearl Harbor was a disaster. And yet, our aircraft carriers were out of port. Um, most of the, the planes that we had on the ground 
remained uh, intact. We're not completely wiped out. Uh, the backbone of our fleet was fine, but we had some severe losses. That that puts us back, but we're not defeated. And and so the Russians, as bad as this may seem, is not nearly as bad as it should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, moving forward as they as they kind of tightened their tentacles on Port Arthur, um, you uh, talked about this a lot last week, Eric, that geography dictates battles and geography dictates history oftentimes. And, you know, the fact that the Korean Peninsula is right there um, kind of lends itself to a siege right there. So all of a sudden, um, Japan is continuing to be the aggressor. And yeah, we're up seven points. We got our steel, we got our layup, we hit a three, and now we've got the momentum. You know, they're pushing even more there to that next layer of the war to really, um, you know, tighten the screws on them. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, In conjunction with this attack, uh, Admiral Togo, who's leading the entire Japanese fleet, um, also is coordinating to have a landing force land of 3,000 Japanese troops in Incheon, South Korea, Incheon, Korea, not South Korea. Um, Or no, is it Incheon or is it Busan? Chimulpa? No, his landing force was, I believe, no, it was Incheon. to begin their invasion up the Korean Peninsula and then into Yalu, um, the Yalu River. Um, but he's coordinating this a landing force at the same time that they're doing these attacks on Chimulpu and Port Arthur. And a, a quote, another quote that I have from this first strike says, the harm inflicted on the Russian fleet was not crippling. The psychological effect on the other hand was devastating. The Japanese Navy had seized command of the sea while the Russians had um, had had stayed in port. Uh, that's by Jeffrey Jukesum from the Russo-Japanese War. So to kind of encapsulate what you and Cameron and Eric have said was, yeah, Japan seized the initiative and now they had controls of the seas in a matter of a day, <laughs> just like that. Um, and uh Something I want to get on to before we get into the siege of the port and some of the battles is Russia had a philosophy. There's there's competing philosophies of why you had an imperial navy. Um, and one of those philosophies was to have a, a basically to have a fleet in waiting. Um, basically, you build up these massive naval fleets and Russia had a massive navy and just the mere fact that you have this big Navy is a deterrent against being attacked. Um, And so that was the Russian, most of the Russian admirals, there's one big exception. Most of the Russian admirals had this fleet in waiting type philosophy. Well, if we just have the big ships and all these battleships, nobody's gonna wanna mess with us. We don't actually have to like go out and see and do patrols and engage. We can just scare them with our big guns. And Japan did not have that philosophy because one, they didn't have a very big fleet. And so they had to be very proactive with what they had to, you know, they kind of had to puff themselves up to be a threat to the Russias and the Britons. And they had to show that they were willing to knock you down um, if you threatened them. Uh, So we had these two warring philosophies and, and it kind of 
bears out in that Japan attacked the Russians because the Russians just thought, well, I have these big ships. Nobody's going to mess with us. And that didn't work out. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers, uh, what the Japanese attacked at Port Harbor was effectively on par with the entire Japanese fleet. Right. Yeah. But the Russians also have a fleet in Vladivostok. They have a fleet in Sevastopol. They have a fleet in St. Petersburg. But the Japanese only need to deal with one at a time. Yep. And so if you strike hard and fast and you can knock one out, then you can move on to the next. And if the Japanese are quick enough, they can end this thing before the Russian fleet, the home fleet, St. Petersburg, can make it to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be the best way for this to go for the Japanese. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, you mentioned on there, uh, you know, because you have Port Arthur, 8th and 9th, February, 1904, um, Admiral uh, Makarov, the That's Russian. Where go. Yeah. Um, was a Russian admiral, very respected, very admired. One of the, he was the leader of that fleet, but he dies on February 9th, Correct. No, no, no. It was in March. Sorry. So Makarov, uh, no, Makarov was the hero of a 1877 war with Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, he was that kind of exception to the Russian theory fleet in waiting. He's like, we got a fleet. Let's use it. It's like, why do you have a Corvette if you're just going to put it in your garage? Like, we've got the fleet. Let's go use it. Let's press the Japanese. And so he replaced Admiral Stark, um, I believe, in March. And so he went there and the second he came into town is like the returning hero and the morale shot up. He started doing daily sorties on patrols out into the waters. He's like, we're going to press the Japanese. We're going to engage them when we can. We're not going to sit in in harbor and wait for them to, to slowly kill us. And like, it was straining within a month, it was straining Togo and his fleet. Like they were taking damage. Their ships were getting worn out. So he Michael Jordan this thing. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Just he to stick to, with he, the basketball analogy, he came in and took the game over. Yeah. He was that effective. And sadly, unlike Michael Jordan, he did not last for six championships in a row. Um, within a month, uh, and I'll just read out another quote um, we have here. Macro's influence was soon removed. On 12th of April, the Japanese laid mines of Port Arthur and lured Makarov into, and his squadron out into attack what he believed to be a small group of cruisers. On the morning of the 13th of April, seeing the combined fleet's battleships approaching, that's Japan, he ordered a return to port, but in 939, with the harbor in sight, his flagship, Petropavlovsk, struck a mine and sank within minutes, taking it, Makarov, and 662 crew members. So within a month, just over a month, Makarov came, revitalized the whole energy of the port, um, was pressing the Japanese, and then he was hit a mine on his way back into port and died. And all that morale, all the training regiments he installed, all the 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 strikes or the deployments or patrols he was doing, all that ended, and the morale sank again. And um, and then after that, um, Vitgift was the new admiral, and he was like, "Nope, we're not leaving again. We're not doing that." So, anyway, yeah, he was like Michael Jordan. He was that guy that could just put the team on his back, so to speak. And 
I think another weakness we see of the Russian Navy and the Russian military in general is that it's too reliant on one person. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Japanese military was very like structured and based on like, if this commander dies, who's the next one up? And you know, like, how do we make sure that the, the mission still gets accomplished even when the leaders are yeah, gone? There's some parallels there with the Russian military being so dependent on officers and certain people as selected as being particularly important. Um, almost to, if we want to parallel it to World War II, the German military was kind of that way, right? Especially near the end, everything had to come from one of the commanders. If you hadn't received an order from higher up, you just, you waited. There was no necessity to uh, take initiative in a situation. Whereas the American military probably had more of that Japanese idea approach in that, you know, if this person goes down, here's the next in line. Everyone knows the objective. Let's go achieve the objective. You do what's necessary to help us achieve the objective. And you do have your constraints and restraints to that. But uh, if the person above you is gone, then then you just fulfill the role and make sure the objective is is dealt with. And that allows some fluidity and flexibility in in combat where you need to not you need to be able to deviate from the plan if the plan has been broken. Yeah, and that's such a good point, you know, not only in, in combat, in battle, but in, you know, in business, in, in sports, in organizations. It's, you know, what is what is the higher up's intent? And then decentralize that, you know, the the action is driven by boots on the ground, not centralized. And and you know, you we can talk about that um in in historical context as well. And and I think Jeff brought that up in uh, D-Day is, you know, what if, what if that would have gone differently? And what if uh, Germany hadn't have been so um, centralized in their command, but same as, same is true here. It, it makes it, I, I think that just to go back to that um, Russia being on their heels, it makes them even more defensive to wait for orders and to, hang on, I'll, we need to hear from somebody before we do anything. So um, well, it's, really it's fine. Turn big numbers on their head. It's fine to wait for orders if the person in charge is as amazing and, and capable as Makarov. <clears throat> the issue is when a Makarov goes down with his ship because Makarov survives mm -hmm. and the, the Russians can actually repel the Japanese away from Port Arthur and maybe start to push back on Japanese plans to move north. But without Makarov, who is it? Uh, Ziglev? Zig, uh, Vitzgeft. Vitzgeft uh, takes over and he's much more, uh, he, he is embodying the on the heels type attitude. And he wants to hold back and play it safe. Meanwhile, the Japanese then can take their initiative and move forward with their plans. Um, whereas Makarov would have been disrupting those plans with his own forays out into the Yellow Sea. Which is, so, it, there's a, a real quick little point and it's in relation to macro necessarily. Um, Japan did lose two battleships during the course of this siege on Port Arthur. Um, but it was because there was a, um, uh, I think it was a cruiser or a destroyer was laying mines and 
he basically said, well, I know where the Japanese patrol boats, where, where their patrols are. So when he was laying the mines, he's like, I'm just going to lay them farther out and see if it can hit something. And that was against orders. He wasn't supposed to do that. But that was the only effective way to actually deal with the Japanese ships is to go lay mines where they're patrolling. And it hit two of their battleships, the Hitsui and Yoshima, and sank them. And so it's just interesting. Is like the few times the Russians do take initiative, it pays huge dividends. But it's not something that's ingrained in them systemically like it is with the Japanese or like um, the British army uh, at this time was very, it was a professional army. And then eventually the United States army in world war one and two became like that. But yeah, it was just like, you see these moments where it's like, man, had Russia just done this, everything mm-hmm. could have been very different, but they just, they were so stuck in their old ways. Um, I do want to get into some of the land battles next. Um, specifically the Battle of Yalu and then Nanshan. Um, so the Battle of Yalu is, is Japan had basically moved up the peninsula of Korea and the Yalu River was the border between Korea and Manchuria. And so Japan, and they're moving fast, like, like you guys have mentioned, they're trying to get where they need to as quick as they can so that the Russians can't coordinate defense. Um, and so they get an invasion force into Korea. Korea accepts them like as their sovereignty. And, but at this point, Korea has now become a puppet state of Japan. Um, Japanese under General Tomek Toko Kuroki mustered in Pyongyang uh, and advanced to the Yalu River, which is bordered on Korean Manchuria. Um, Kodama. So that, that still serves as the border of North Korea and China today, the Yalu River. Mm-hmm up the Western coast of the Korean peninsula. It's right where it starts, the land starts to turn West. So yeah, probably throw a map up so we can kind of see where that is if you're, if you're watching this, but. Definitely. And so he orders General Kodoma to get to Yalu as fast as they can. They reach it in mid April. Uh, General Kuropatkin, who will go on into World War I as well, um, leading the Russians in that endeavor. Um, had previously visited the Japanese in 1903. He had been impressed with them during their visit. Um, he intended to avoid, avoid major engagements initially and make orderly withdrawals and then launch a counteroffensive in the late summer when he had gained substantial numerical superiority. Kuropotkin's proposal fell foul of the ignorance of many superior officers, including Chief General Alexei Nikolaevich, um, who seriously underestimated their opponents among them were Viceroy Alexei and General Sazulich, who commanded the Eastern Detachment of Kuropotkin's forces. So Kuropotkin wanted to kind of do a organized withdrawal to their bases in Manchuria. And then when they were reinforced, launch a counteroffensive because they would get essentially endless reinforcements from from Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that was via the Trans-Siberian Railway. Yep. Which... In, in reading, and go ahead, go ahead Cameron. I, I, yeah, I was going to ask. It, 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 it looked like um, the railroad wasn't fully built to go south, so it didn't go into Manchuria all the way at that point, and was still being built, which slowed down the 
second wave of the Russian soldiers, kind of furthering that idea of, hey, we got to wait, hey, we got to retreat, hey, we got to, you know, lack that offensive while our buddies come. Am I am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, I think Lake Baikal, it wasn't finished there. And so especially during the winter, they would have to ferry across or they'd ferry across in the summer and then they'd have to like pull it across with sleds in the winter or something like that. And then reconnect with the railroad. And but it was also a one track railroad. Mm-hmm. And so where trains would be approaching each other, what we have today is we just have we have separate tracks, right? A track on the right that goes this way and a track on the left that goes this way. So what they had along the Trans-Siberian Railroad was the, the track, it was just one, and then they'd have kind of a an off track for like a mile so that you'd, you'd take that off track, this train would pass and then you'd get back on. So that slowed things down. I think it still took, <clears throat> you know, it already takes 10 to 15 days to travel that distance from Moscow to Vladivostok. And then if you take in all these stops that can take an hour or two, it's going to slow the whole thing down. So while the Russian plan requires a lot of time, if, if the Japanese don't give you that time, you, you are kind of up the Creek. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, as you said, Cameron, it's severely, delayed them in getting the reinforcements that Kuropotkin wanted um, because he knew we have the numbers. Russia has way more people, so we can just keep sending soldiers until Japan breaks. Um, But time is of the essence. And in this case with Yalu, um, uh, Kuroki, (laughs) I mean, they rushed so quickly that uh, the Russians had to abandon a, a timber mill and so there's all these tools that the Japanese are just able to take because the Russians left them so quickly and disorganized. Um, and then they started preparing their assault over Yalu River and under cover of darkness and they kept everything hidden. They um, masked their patrols as local fishermen. Yeah. Um, and the Russians, meanwhile, are like setting up their guns in the middle of the day and like you can see where all their troops are and everything. And Japan's just really? Oh, OK. And. When it came to it, like the Japanese already, knew exactly where yeah. the Russian big guns were, which is another thing that I, that I find interesting. I've done a lot of study in World War One, and you have these big gun emplacements, and and artillery is is just so important in World War One. At this time, artillery, you know, coming out of like the American Civil Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War, you have these. You know, these mo- uh, mobile wheeled cannons and you bring them out and you shoot them at the opponent who you see across the field, but that's not going to be like that. The Japanese have these guns, you know, half or, or a mile back, half a mile or a mile back from the lines. They're hidden. They're in these emplacements and they have them pre-sighted into different grids where they know the Russians are going to be so that they can communicate quickly and, and, and engage all of their guns. And some of these are these, uh, what were they? Uh, like crop howitzers. Yeah, they were, uh, and I forget the measurement on the howitzers, but they were they were made by Krupp uh, Ironworks out of Germany. These were these were big guns, and they had them pre-sighted and ready to go, and they had them hidden. So the Russians had no idea where these guns were. They were going to hide. Uh, once they started firing, the Japanese had plans to 
make sure they kept them hidden, keep the dirt in front of the guns wet so that none of the dust kicked up. But the Russian guns are very clearly placed around so the Japanese know exactly where they're going to be. Well, and, and what they did was <clears throat> Japan also built a bridge as a decoy bridge because they had to cross this river. And then the Russians just went boom, 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 and blew up that bridge. But in so doing, revealed every position of their gun. And so the Japanese, all right, well, now we know where all their guns are. So when they built the real bridges, they were, and they started bombing the Russians, they just said, well, bomb all where their big guns are as we cross. And the Russians were totally like taken aback by it. Yeah, and this is an interesting battle. As I read about it, I had trouble kind of getting some context. And then <clears throat> as I read about it and looked into some more sources, I kind of got a feel for how this battle played out across this river. There's also, um, there's Yalu River, which also is joined by the Ai River that comes from the north. And where those two rivers join is a hill called Tiger Hill that initially the Russians controlled this hill. And from this hill, I think it was a two me 200 meter hill, they could see the entire lay of the land. And very early on, the, the Russians abandoned this hill. Again, this kind of uh, planned retreat, structured retreat. They give up probably the most important piece of this, this terrain, which is Tiger Hill, because now they can't see all the positions of the Japanese. Japanese are able to take it, and it gives them even more advantage. But also, uh, this is not... You know, there, there's a lot of parallels to World War One, but there, there aren't really parallels here because the quickness and speed that the Japanese are able to move on this battlefield is, we don't see this kind of movement in World War One. In World War One, it goes directly into trench warfare. There's, the, the Russians have prepared positions here, but the Japanese, uh, they move quickly. They cross a river, which seems very bold, and they succeed in forcing their way across the river and pushing the Russians back. Within a day or two. Like, yeah. that's the thing. <laughs> they took it in a day. And you shouldn't be able to do that with a good defense. And they did it so quickly and so well. They silenced the Russian guns after 30 minutes of bombardment. And then they continued until the Russians withdrew until evening. Um, it says the battle was so one-sided, the Japanese were able to secure loans for the war effort from London and New York. Uh, the Russians could not block the landing at Liaotung Peninsula, and Port Arthur is now cut off from all land communications. So Port Arthur is now isolated. Yeah, and the Russians also, what they had 24 guns, of which 21 field guns, right, artillery, 21 that were destroyed. I mean, that's how well the Japanese were able to target in on those things and, and wipe them out. And seeing as artillery is going to be critical to how this war and future wars are going to be fought, uh, the Japanese recognized the role of artillery much better than the Russians did and used it to their advantage. Another thing that I kind of want your guys' thoughts on was, as I was reading this, um, there that, what did they call it? Yellow peril kept coming up in in my reading mm. as well so this is the point in the battle where you know they're kind of going further north into the land and ethnic asians are kind of teaming with ethnic asians in this uh battle kind of against the the russians and it made it worse um my understanding is that 
uh, the the Russians were were raping and pillaging even commoners, even civilians, because they viewed them as as traitors or on the other side of the of the fence. Well, whether they were or were not, it. Am I explaining that right? No, am I, you're. Am I asking that right? You're uh, you're right on, and it's interesting. I, I wanted to get into this on episode three, but I think this is a good point. Uh, we mentioned it in passing. Um, the Japanese intelligence system was incredible in this war. Um, there was a colonel who was stationed like in Scandinavia somewhere, Colonel Akashi, I believe, and he had an intelligence network, which basically knew every time St. Petersburg made a decision or the Tsar made a decision, he knew about it right away and was able to tell his counterparts in Japan, hey, here's what the Russians are doing. And so they were able to Anything that Kuropotkin or anybody was trying to do, Japan already knew about it because their intelligence network. They did have a lot of Chinese spies. Russia did too, but Japan paid theirs better. Um, so they were more incentivized to work with the Japanese. And like you said, Cameron, the Japanese, um, when they took over a city or when they like essentially conquered Korea, uh, the soldiers mainly kept to themselves. Um, if they did go into town, um, they had people like in there as civil, city administrators who said, all right, well, if you're gonna, if you wanna have sex, here's the brothel, you go to the brothel and, you know, conduct a business transaction, literally. Um, don't go in harassing people. Um, mm-hmm. If you're gonna take people's homes, we're gonna pay them and we're gonna make sure that they can sleep somewhere else. So like everything they did was just far more professional and far more I mean, it's still an occupying force, but you'd rather have the occupying force that isn't killing you and raping you as opposed to the occupying force that's burning stuff down. Like the Russians would take over Chinese villages and towns and tear their houses down to use the lumber and like go, well, we can't, we don't have anywhere to sleep now. Like, well, that's your problem. And they would get drunk and they'd fight. And yeah. yeah. So there was this in it. So part of it, yeah, is one Japanese and Chinese ethnically look like each other, but the Japanese and Chinese weren't friends by any means. The Chinese not 10 years ago was, was their overlords and had a lot of, had a lot of control over Japan. Yeah. There's a, there's a panel, there's a spread in, um, in the Russo Japanese war, this book, I'm sure you've seen it, Jake, where on one side, it shows the Japanese beheading Chinese spies, a painting. And on the other side is Russians hanging Chinese spies. Yeah. And so this is, this is an area that is ethnically Chinese. The Japanese are foreigners (laughs) there. The Russians are foreigners there. The Chinese live there and have lived there for hundreds or thousands of years. And they're getting caught up in the middle of this and they're, they are the only victims in this whole thing, them and the Koreans. Um, the Russians and Japanese are both waging war. So, you know, they yeah. aren't really victims here, but um, well, yeah, that's a it, good it, point. The way they treated the inhabitants they were conquering or occupying was wildly different. Yeah. And in China and Korea, for their part, would be like, well, we're getting conquered. It doesn't seem like we have a way out of that. So let's pick the side that's at least being decent to us. And like I mentioned before, it's it's hard not to stress enough. Japan, Korea, and China have a long history of not liking each other and being at war with each other. So it is interesting um, that in this instance, the Koreans and the Chinese were 
if not welcoming, at least more receptive to Japanese occupation than Russian occupation. I guess it's the devil you know, right? You, you know the Japanese, you know who they are. You don't know who the Russians are. Um, but that is a good question. Um, do you want to move on to the Battle of Nanshan or Nanshan? Which is the Russians had to hold uh, the Liaotung Peninsula at Nanshan Hill, which is only a few miles across. So this is kind of their their stand to prevent the Japanese from besieging Port Arthur from the north, from the land, because they already had Port Arthur locked up from the sea. Um, yeah, I. Uh, so there, I guess, geographically speaking, um, if you have the Korean Peninsula uh, to the west, where the Korean Peninsula meets mainland Asia, to the west of that is this uh, Laodong, Laodong uh, Peninsula. And that peninsula narrows to its, its end where Port Arthur is. And there's another city in there called Dalian. And there's this narrow point. It's, it's roughly two and a half miles across. Um, and this is east of Port Arthur, five or six miles. And it's it's a it's a kind of an interesting, I guess, choke point, right? Um, where the Russians control Port Arthur, and the Japanese are looking to attack the Russians um, on this on this last piece after this this isthmus, right? This little strip right there where they can attack and cut off Port Arthur and hopefully take Port Arthur, and that's kind of the the goal, but it's this very tiny piece of land that this battle is going to happen. Uh, and it's Nanshan Hill where the Japanese are going to be attacking. Yeah. And uh, so this is another instance where the Russians are outgunned, but they have permanent defenses, including barbed wire and landmines. So you're getting that kind of proto world war one vibe here. Yeah, um, this is uh, yeah, they have, actually prepared defenses. When you say outgunned, I mean, we have about 35,000 Japanese attacking roughly 4,000 Russians. Yeah. So we're looking nine to one here. Yeah. Yeah. It was not right. ideal, but. Um, well, why, why were there not more Russians there? I mean, by, by now the. Uh, well, this is Port the Arthur. There's no way. Been coming from. The Russians haven't reached Port Arthur yet. Right, they'd be coming from the north. This is this area okay, has been cut down. off okay. from mm -hmm. the Russian network, I guess. So, yeah, okay. and that's the right because that's the Battle of Yalu because the Japanese won that and they won it so quickly. Port Arthur is now cut off from the rest of the Russian Empire, so they can't get resupply from from land unless they retake Yalu River and, and take and reconnect the supply lines or they can break out of their um, blockade at sea. Um, so Battle of Nanshan, uh, they arrive on, Japanese forces arrive on the 15th of May, on May 24th and 25th. So there's all these landmines that the Russians had and all this barbed wire. On the May 24th and 25th, rain came and washed over the dirt that was covering the landmines. So now the Japanese could see where all the Russian landmines were. 
thus <laughs> negating their effectiveness. Um, <clears throat> they attacked uh, the town of Chinchow first, uh, but were unable to eat, defeat the Russian defense, which was skillfully done by Colonel Trechikov. So one of these rare examples of a Russian leader who's kind of breaking out of the mold and it is capable, um, but he runs out of ammunition by midday and they have to abandon the town. So they didn't have enough ammo. Um, Russian general folk ordered a general retreat, um, but orders were not conveyed, which led to confusion and the destruction of ammo dumps. So again, lack of Russian communication, lack of, and like Eric, you mentioned this last week, um, what are they called? Helio? Heliograph, right? Helio. Heliograph. Yeah, so the, the Japanese were using heliographs, which were basically mirrors that you could put up and you could signal to other forces across the battlefield and convey instead of sending runners, um, which could you know get killed or captured um, or lost, you could do a heliograph, assuming it was clear, and say you know use Morse code and say all right, move here, here, here. The Russians didn't use those because they thought we're not going to do this newfangled thing. We're going to use our old-fashioned stuff, um, and so they couldn't communicate effectively on this new modern battlefield. So even when they retreated, they was out of disorganized and they gave up a bunch of ammunition. They gave up supplies. They gave up positions because they just weren't talking to each other. Um, the loss of Nanshan cut Port Arthur off from the main Russian base in Manchuria. And that's where Kuropotkin is. He's in the Russian base in Manchuria. So he can't relieve Port Arthur now. Um, this allowed General Kodoma to send two divisions under General Nogi to capture Port Arthur from the land. Nogi, interestingly enough, had captured Port Arthur 10 years prior against China and was hoping to do so again. So yeah, that's with the Battle with of Nanchan. The, um, with the Russians, though, right, their lack of communication, one of the issues they had, right, they weren't able to communicate. And so uh, it's Colonel uh, Tretiak. Kov, yeah, is on this Nanshan Hill watching what are supposed to be reinforcements retreating and realizing that once those retreat and he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't have communication with them, he just sees them retreating. As they retreat, he realizes now he's actually encircled. So if they retreat, he's going to be encircled. So his only choice at Nanshan Hill is to retreat off this, this hill that's fortified. It's got barbed wire, Maxim machine guns. They've got trench works. Um, he's got a few hundred men with him, I think, or a thousand men. Uh, they, they're going to be able to hold this position against however many Japanese come at them. But if they're encircled, they're only going to last as long as ammunition they have. So he retreats. And in his retreat... Uh, loses 650 men on his way out, right? So had he stayed, they probably could have done some more damage, held the Japanese, but he didn't because he realized he was going to be encircled. Uh, and yeah, this is, this is just, again, what the, the Russians are unable or unwilling to do to change for what the modern warfare is going to look like uh, it's going to lose them. And, and this on top of the Japanese lose 6,000 men. They have 6,000 casualties. The Russians have a few hundred killed. So 
this shouldn't be a Japanese victory, but because the Russians do retreat, it becomes a Japanese victory. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's not, it's, it's funny watching this war play out because Russia is so incompetent. It's almost laughable. And it almost makes you think, well, Japan isn't doing a good job. It's just Russia's doing such a bad job. But Japan is doing an excellent job. They've seized the initiative. They control the seas. Um, where Russia is doing poorly, Japan is excelling. You know, where Russia is not concealing their guns, Japan is hiding them and knowing where the others are. They are communicating. Like, it, it's a, it's almost like an exercise in opposites. For everything Russia is doing wrong, Japan is doing right. And the, 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 the contrasts couldn't be more stark um, in seeing how these, these engagements play out. So there's a couple statistics here. In, Go ahead, Cameron. And in, in spite of that, though, it, it seemed like, you know, Japan had a hard time finishing them off. You know, there, there were many... Um, victories for Japan, but it didn't seem like these are decisive victories up to this point. Now, is that a, num a matter of just pure numbers on Russia's part, or they they didn't finish them off for whatever reason? Why? It, it seems like this, this war should have been over much earlier than it was. Well, the Russians are still, they're sending their people. Like the Russian, the full complement of the Russian army is still on its way. And when we look at the totality of this war, we're going to see that I think the Russians will commit over a million men to this war. And I think the peak will be about 700,000 and the Japanese peak will be about 600,000 committed at any single time. But we we haven't seen that yet. And so. Yeah, these are relatively small. Yeah, th these are very strategic victories because these give Japan strategic locations to hold and control, but they're not decisive knockout punches because yeah. they took Nanshan, which means they can take Port Arthur, but the Russians lost 1,500 men. That's the Japanese lost four times that in that battle. So yeah. the Japanese gained Laodong Peninsula, they gained Port <clears throat> Arthur or they will eventually, but it doesn't knock the Russians out of the war. It just means yeah. they've got that. It location. delays the, yeah. And the, the Russians are still under the assumption that even if Port Arthur had fallen on February 8th, let's assume that that's what had happened. The Russians would still be under the assumption that that's okay. We'll send our other fleets and we'll send a million, well. we'll send a million men and we'll wipe them off the map. Yeah. Like, the Russians are still under this idea that our numbers are enough to overwhelm Japan. And maybe they are. I mean, maybe the maybe they are. But um, right now, the first two rounds have all gone to Japan. Um, so kind of wrapping up the those early land battles. Now we're at the Battle of the Yellow Sea. Um, Admiral Witzgeft, who had to take over after Makarov died, he did not want to go out to sea. Uh, he wanted to do the fleet in waiting, um, but Tsar Nicholas basically ordered him to. He's like, because as the blockade is tightening, and this is in August of 1904, and as now that Nanshan is gone, and now that the siege of Port Arthur on the land has begun, um, 
the Japanese big guns, those Krupp big howitzers are getting closer and closer and they'll be able to start hitting the Japanese fleet um, while they're in harbor. So either you wait and get sunk or you go out and try to make a break for Vladivostok. And that's what sets up. So Nicholas is basically, you're going out, you're gonna, you're gonna try to make a run for, for Vladivostok and we can, we can begin our recapturing of the seas from there um, as long as we have the bulk of our fleet. Um, at this point in August, um, Eric, I believe Nicholas has ordered the second Pacific squadron to be created. I think he ordered that in May, um, but it is still not left the Baltic Sea. It's still being built up and uh, will not leave the Baltic Sea, I think, until like October. Um, just to, so reinforcements are coming but uh, from the sea, but not for a while. Um, so Vitgeft uh, steams out on August 10th. Um, and he engages the Japanese at 1230. They cross his T, which if you know what that is, it's it's if the Russians are coming in one direction, the Japanese fleet is waiting um, perpendicular to that so that they can broadside the Russian fleet as it's approaching. Um, so he crossed their T at 1230. And uh, the, the Russians are just making a, a full tilt to Vladivostok. They fight from 1230 to 3.30. Um, the Japanese have to stop firing so they can just chase. The Japanese ships are faster than the Russians. Um, battle resumes at 5.30. So they fought for three hours. The Japanese chased them for two more. At 6.20, um, the Vsarovich battleship is hit. And... Um, the command tower is destroyed. Vitgeft is killed. I think it actually said he was like blown in half um, when it got hit. Gosh. Um, once he gets hit, the Russian fleet disintegrates. And here's another thing. The Russians did not use radio. Or if they did, they used it minimally. They, used, they were reliant on the old flag signaling from ship to ship, which is how you say, all right, everybody move left or everybody bank this way. And that's how they relied. Well, once the command tower is blown up and those flags can't signal anymore, the rest of the Russian line doesn't know what to do. And so they're like, what do we do? And so Rear Admiral Prince Uktomsky now becomes <laughs> the second in command. Um, but he's something, another ironic fate, twist of luck. So on Vitgev's ship, the one hit that killed Vitgift and his staff. The second jammed the helm hard over, putting the rush to Sarovich hard turned to port. Unaware of the death of the Admiral, the rest of the Russian line just followed him, followed the ship. So the, the, the shell hit the ship and it turned it so that it started steaming to the left. And all the other ships, because they didn't have radio, were like, well, I guess we're gonna go that way too. So then they all followed in a line to the left. So then Prince Uktomsky says, no, we got to go back to Port Arthur, but the line is disintegrated. So a bunch of the ships try to get back to Port Arthur. I think one of them, the Red Vesan charges the Japanese line and actually breaks the line, um, but it's eventually scuttled. Um, but yeah, it's just this, this battle, the LLC, um, the, the numbers 
Five battleships, one cruiser, and nine destroyers returned back to Port Arthur. The Sarovich, three cruisers, four destroyers were interned at neutral ports for the remainder of the war. The Novik was the only ship that made it back to the Vladivostok. Or, but <laughs> um, it had to actually scuttle its ship and the crew had to go to Vladivostok via land. They had to walk to Vladivostok. So Russia lost, in a sense, in a matter of six hours, half their fleet. I mean, they kept most of their battleships, but half their fleet was now, their their Pacific fleet was now destroyed or interred um, and out of the war. And none, and none of them actually made it to Vladivostok where they were trying to go. And so this battle is curious because it is effectively the first major naval battle between modern warships, steel-hulled warships. Um, so whatever experience these commanders have had began on wooden-hulled, non-moving uh, turrets, right? They didn't have turrets on these battleships. So they're new to this. They're developing this warfare uh, for the future to use. Now in World War I, there's only gonna be one major naval battle and that's gonna be the Battle of Jutland. Um, outside of that, it's all U-boats and, and breaking uh, convoys up. But this is that first major naval battle of the modern era. But, and here's something that, that's interesting is, as we mentioned in the last episode, Japan had a naval academy and they had a system for officers. And even though most of their Navy was conscripts, it was a better life. And so they trained and they all had to be literate. Whereas Russian Navy officers were granted, or people were granted officerships more based on who your family is. Um, they frequently did not go out for patrol even when they were at peace. So they didn't do exercises or maneuvers. Uh, the sailor, the average Russian sailor would spend most of his time on land and not at sea. Um, and so you can kind of see as much as Alan Iverson would hate to say it, practice matters, right? Like it matters that you practice. It matters that you train for the game. And the Russians didn't. They just assumed they had these big bad ships and these big bad guns. That's all we need. And the Japanese trained, trained, trained. They were constantly trying to make sure if they had weaknesses, they minimized them and they played to their advantages. And it showed in this first big naval battle um, that practice matters. You're talking about practice. Practice? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're staying with a basketball analogy. That's yeah, my why. Why jump to something else? At this point? <laughs> we're gonna stick with it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just it's so interesting. And had Vitgeft been killed as he was, and had the Sarovich not turned left, the rest of the Russian line might have continued going north. And yeah, they might have still had some losses but they wouldn't have all turned back into Porter. It's just really interesting, this little twist of fate, that even if they had lost Vitgift and the Sarvich battleship, there's a good chance that some of the other ones still would have made it to 
Vladivostok, which would have changed the the dynamics of the war, maybe not necessarily the outcome. But now if you have a viable Russian fleet that isn't bogged up in harbor, um, you have a chance there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a couple other things that I want to go over. Uh, I want to talk about the Vladivostok squadron real quick because um, they're about the only effective naval power Russia had. Uh, they had those four cruisers that frequently went on sorties. Um, they sank a lot of transport ships, specifically transport ships that were carrying those big Krupp howitzers, which delayed the eventual conquest of Port Arthur by Japan. Um, but eventually, I think, and on this day, they were supposed to meet with, um, meet up with the Pacific Squadron halfway. And then when the Pacific Squadron turned around, they were isolated in. I think a couple of their ships were destroyed and they had to, they were essentially out of the war. So, yeah. And then the Pacific Squadron um, gets formed, but it doesn't leave um, for Port Arthur from the Baltic Sea until October. So two months after this battle of the Yellow Sea, is when the second Pacific Squadron finally leaves the Baltic and starts its long trek, which we'll talk about next week um, for the the third episode of this. Um, Eric, you have any parting thoughts? No, I, well, okay. I, I don't know why I said no. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, it is this, I think the theme we're seeing here is we're not talking about two empires at war. We're talking about two different ways of, of waging war and philosophies for organizing your military and, and in some sense, organizing your, your society um, for success. And there's a way that has worked in the past. And I think this is true for many of us um, in our lives and in our places of work that, you know, uh, why change something? Why go through the pain of changing something? Uh, if we've always done it that way, and it's always seemed to be successful, right? So a very structured, tiered society and military, like what the Russians have, has worked for hundreds of years in Western Europe and in Europe. Obviously, Europe has come to dominate the world in terms of wealth and, and in terms of being able to push its culture onto other people. Um, so why change that if it has always worked? On the other hand, the Japanese realize what they were doing didn't work. They're going to adopt a few things while also keeping what works in their society. And that's going to inform their military during this war and in the future. Um, that decentralization of command, the ability of everyone to, to make decisions and take initiative, the desire to take initiative. Um, it's not just these two militaries, it's these two competing ideas. And we're seeing that Japan's method is playing itself out much better. Um, and we really haven't even gotten into the thick of battles the battles we've seen have been relatively small 
maybe 50,000 men in total in any given battle. And we're going to see a lot more men come into this fray in the future. Uh, so it, it's interesting. I mean, we always talk about when East meets West and, and this is one of those. And it is the first time in however many hundreds of years that an Asian power has handed a Western power a defeat like this. Well, and it's funny you say East meets West, because in this instance, Japan is acting more Western, so to speak, than Russia. Um, Russia is still very autocratic and old world, and their military reflects that. Whereas Japan has rushed to modernization and um, and civil administration and, and I mean everything about them. Although they're still an empire, they're a very modern empire, and um, yeah, it's just a kind of a, it's just I don't know what the right word is, but it is interesting that the Western nation is Japan in this instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've said this for years but um i always make it akin to you know and you can these battles are a microcosm of of life too and and like you guys are getting at is the um the what is what if excuse me the what if thinkers versus the what is thinkers um Mm -hmm. what if thinkers are forward thinking and let's try this new thing and let's be open-minded and then the what is person tends to be you know, no, this works or let's stick with the fundamentals or let's not deviate from that. And um, it's it's fascinating to me because, you know, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle there. And it's it's too much of an overgeneralization to say always pushing the envelope and always looking at the, the next biggest, newest thing. Um, but, yeah, it's it's cool to see this in combat, um, because like you guys said, at the top of the first show, that this connects to other future conflicts and how much did um, did we learn from this um, reversed um, modern battle that there was and uh, fascinating to look at not only just the, the tactics and everything, but the, the mentalities as well of each country. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, uh, oh man, there's just so much here I want to say. Maybe we have to go four episodes. I mean, maybe that's what (laughs) happens. Maybe it is. I don't know. It's just, and it's really exciting to see what happens in this next episode. Um, Just a, yeah, but we'll save it for next time. Um, But yeah, thank you guys. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening and watching. Uh, Be sure to tune in next week for our third episode of Russo-Japanese War, uh, where we'll be talking about the voyage of the 2nd Pacific Squadron, the Battle of Tsushima, and the conclusion of the war. Uh, Thank you all for joining us. I'm Jake, Eric, and Cameron. Y'all have a good night. Oh, like, subscribe, and follow. Yes. What to say in the last week. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, and follow. (laughs) I apologize. Don't forget. (laughs) Do it. All right. Good night, everybody.